Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Andy Rogers here. Welcome back to MedTech Speed to Data, uh, episode 25, 25 years at KeyTech. It's our anniversary this year, and this 25th episode. Uh, thrilled to have Joe Mullings here on the, on the episode. Joe, welcome to the show. Good to have uh, the show here in our studio as well. So thanks, and happy 25 years. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, my studio is not as exotic as yours. I need to work on that. Uh, but I will be in Florida in a couple of weeks. So excited, excited about that. So Joe is not our normal guest here on, on MedTech Speed to Data. Uh, Joe uh, is supporting a lot of our clients in building their, their teams. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Today, we're, we're going to talk about building sales teams. We're going to talk about uh, surgical robotics and then just talk about the, the broader market. So Joe, can you just describe, <laughs> you don't have one job, it seems, you have many jobs. So uh, what is it that you do? Tell our audience. Yeah, um, thank you. So the Mullings Group is uh, started in 92, 1992. I started in recruiting in 1989. Um, since 1992, we've executed more than 8,000 successful searches, search assignments for our clients in the medical device marketplace. Um, and historically, the focus of the med tech has changed as the leading edge of where is the investment coming and where is the industry growing. So as an example, we built first stent company, first drug-coated stent company. We got into structural heart when that was considered and still is hot. And then certainly the digital transition that's been occurring since 2015-ish or so on telehealth, surgical robotics, predictive analytics, using data as advisement uh, in medical devices. And uh, in 2015, we also launched a media company. We're the only search firm in the world that has its own media production studio, organization associated with it, Dragonfly Stories, which is a seven-time Telly Award-winning organization that's also put out docuseries and oftentimes highlights most of the compelling technologies in the medical device and health tech space. Very, very exciting. Yeah. So, I mean, the last part of there uh, is really what I want to get into is the, the podcast and the media side. Uh, I will admit uh, we're on this podcast in part due to, you know, watching what you're doing on the recruiting side. Obviously, KeyTech is not doing recruiting, but um, why did you make that shift from, you know, classically, you know, dial, pick up the phone and call people to, you know, where you are today? Why did you make that shift? Well, it started the genesis of it. I have to thank um, Google and Johnson and Johnson for birthing um, this this you know needs. Invention usually comes out of dire need, and so uh, I had gotten a call in 2015 from a good friend, Scott Hunnikins, who was launching Verb Surgical, which was the um, JV between Johnson and Johnson and Google. It was a very large format soft tissue robot. And so they needed to hire about 300 people in 24 months in the Bay Area. And um, when Scott told me, I said, sure. Um, But then he told me, I can't, you can't show the robot. You can't show the inside of Google. And you can't even, you know, get into too much detail. Do you still think you can do it? And I, and being a sales guy, I said, yeah, sure, I can still do this. Uh, And then I started thinking to myself, you know, as you pointed out, historically, search has been one point of contact, one conversation hang up the phone, dial again, right? And when you look at 250 people and you look at probably five people per position to interview and you look at four interviews per position, now you're, 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 in, that, you're in that 10 to 20,000 interaction range that you just can't pull off in a classic analog delivery system, which is what classic search has been. So we were uh, on the flight back from um, Google, and uh, I'm sitting there scratching my head going, okay, I made a promise. How am I going to crack this? And Facebook was up across the aisle from me, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, wow, all these high school people and sometimes college people staying in contact with each other and reaching out at scale. So we landed the plane, and um, I called up LinkedIn, and I said, you guys doing video? And they said, interesting. Yeah, we are. Um, and we'd like you to be a beta for it. And so we were the very first search firm with a video on LinkedIn, and we did that for the J&J Google 
build a verb. And I saw how powerful that was. And today we've got 150,000 sets of eyes on us every day. So just in a really, you know, primal comparison, I can pick up the phone 10 times a day. I can post something at 7.30 every morning like I do and reach 150,000 people. So hence the reason right. why we built that up. And then I decided, you know, when, when we built the railroad, and this was an analogy I used in 2015 in our corporate annual meeting, I said, we're going to build the railroad across this country much like um, the early pioneers did because if you're going to deliver goods, timber, cotton, cows, whatever it is, you need to have a delivery system. And so you could have a great production company, great media company, but if you don't have the railroad or the delivery mechanism, i.e. followers and eyes, you've got nothing. So we started putting as much effort, and this is where I think podcast people miss it, is they put out a nice podcast, but they don't spend four times as much online building up their distribution network. Yeah, and so what do you mean by that? creating ads from the, from the recording and, and, and spending ads to push it out. I mean, is that what you mean by well, distribution? Um, your distribution network is creating value online that people want to come back all the time. And so, yeah. you know, while podcast is one voice in a chorus of voices, you've got to have multiple channels on your so-called marketing media outreach. And your content needs to be educating. LinkedIn is an education platform. It's not a job opportunity platform. And the people who understand that LinkedIn is a learning platform, first and foremost, yeah. um, will, will then start to think about their prescription moving forward. So educate, educate, educate. And one of those components in a lot of, a lot of people's portfolio is the podcast. So by educating people, for the most part, especially medtech, we are voracious learners, which is why it makes it so enjoyable for me to spend three plus decades in it is that need to constantly be learning from a visceral experience with most people. If you put out a platform that teaches, you will receive back business. Yeah. I would just add to that, that um, obviously you need to educate, but also not be a robot about it, like tell stories, you know, and I, I think that's the dragonfly stories, right? That where yeah. that sort of came from, you got to be able to do both. And, uh, our, our prior agency who, you know, helped us get this up and running, they, they preached a lot of what you're saying, you know, you, you need to develop these relationships at scale and how do you do that? And, and necessity was the, the mother of your invention there. And, and, um, you know, you don't always want to be put yourself in that situation, but that's where innovation happens. So, um, well, yeah, it's gotta be on the edge of uncomfortable because other look, Think back of every great learning moment you ever had in your life. They, they rarely revolve around success. They may declare themselves eventually into success, but most of the time when you learn, it's while you're on your ass on the floor or you just received a throat punch or yeah. you have to make a decision and you're at a bifurcation in the road that you go one way or the other and therefore you've got to invent a new approach to things. So you know, I think that's important to keep in mind is constantly being on the edge of discomfort. Let's talk about this tomorrow. I mean, I'm leading a sales organization, a business development team, and and one of the leaders here at Key Tech. We're a 75 person company, and from a marketing and sales perspective, like we we subscribe to this. You need to invest in marketing. Everybody does. They have their own way to way to do it. But particularly in the in the seat that I'm in, and in the seat that maybe a lot of your customers or some of the the business development leaders, your customers are in, you know, you, you can you can't do it all. So you know, you can't have this wonderful sort of Netflix level sort of, uh, engine uh, per se, uh, you're doing it. Um, but then also be able to close business, uh, at least from like the services perspective here. So that is the struggle, right? Is uh, of business development, doing marketing and doing sales, making sure they're intertwined and making ends meet. So how did you build your organization, uh, I guess, downstream from the railroad? How are you building the overall sales and marketing engine on, on your side. I'm just curious about that. First of all, if, especially if you're an entrepreneur, you've got a decision to make pretty much every week. Are you going to pay yourself or are you going to pay your business? That's got to be front and center for you. And then what you've got to do is you've got to say, okay, what's my ROI? But reflexively on that, you've got to decide on what timeline. 
right. because I often get the question of, well, what's your ROI? And immediately I say, on what timeline? Next week, next month, next year, or 10 years from now? So those are the two items that when I make decisions, I also then go to the third and say, what is a sustainable activity? Either from an economic perspective, a talent perspective, a content perspective, and does the audience exist for what I'm about to put out? We still are the only search firm in the world with a media company tied to it. And so when I started this, my people also said, under their breath, he's out of his mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So, so, you know, coming back to you, this is an enormous economic lift. And I don't care at what strata you're sitting at in your business. When you know that media, well done, because really sales is just marketing well done, and then marketing is media well done. So, you know, if you go back to geometry, that, that, therefore, that says media is sales. Because if anybody has used marketing appropriately in a media setting, and, and that's a qualifier there, they know that it adds to sales all the time. That's the holy grail. <laughs> um, and I guess just to go further down the pipeline, what I'm trying to get at is, is the structure of your team that then closes the deals because it seems like you're you're focused as as you rightfully should be on the content and making sure it resonates and getting the right guests and and making you know getting it all aligned but how are you structuring the team downstream of that yeah. um to okay. to to Good. bring so to make the details yeah so cool so we're a 34 person firm tmg is the mullings group um i think we've only got 12 recruiters so less than almost a third of our organization of recruiters. You go to any other search firm, wow. this, the head count is 80, 85% recruiters. Right. Okay, so we have developed this firm and our average per desk billing is about five times industry norm for our salespeople, five times. So my people don't work five times harder. They're not five times smarter. Um, however, they... They have selected us and we have selected them because who they are, um, what their temperament is, what their intelligence is, fits our model. So you've got 12 recruiters and then you've got about one, two, three, four, four search operations people. And those search operations people do all the things that our search consultants don't, shouldn't be doing that keeps them off interacting with their market. And when I say interacting with their market, if you went 15 years ago, you'd say be on the telephone. But interaction with the market is email, in-mail, voicemail, right. copy, um, text, phone calls, etc. So how are you interacting with your audience? And then Dragon, and then we've got a chief marketing officer, Nicole Ager, who then helps lead all of the marketing and media efforts which is around this studio, and you've got world-class editors in a search firm. You've got, our, we've got our own software computer programming team, right? No other search firm has that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they develop the content that you see put out by us on these digital interaction that we use for marketing. Uh, and then you've got a whole media team that are graphic artists, um, creators, content creators, et cetera. So that, yeah. that's the construct of the organization. And just one other question, if I may, on the recruiter yeah. side. And, and again, I'm, I'm building my own team here. And I, I'm sure you know, your customers and our customers are ultimately building sales teams as well. This idea of kind of like rugged individualism, you know, each person's got a number they got to hit and you assign them a region and go do it versus you know, building an engine and a machine that uh, you know, everyone's like working together as, as more of like a, a cohesive team. Where, where do you, where does your recruiter kind of model fall? Curious. I would say on par in most search firms, more than 60% of the placements are what we call not split. So think about real estate on MLS, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time the recruiter books, the job order, he or she then fulfills it themselves and moves on. I would say more than 90 to 95%, I'd even go that close, 
are all internal joint effort splits, meaning everybody works with each other because we only focus on one industry, med tech. And so therefore, the reason we started that in 1992 before there was such thing as you know recruiting online or LinkedIn for that matter, is as an engineer, and I'm an engineer, I said to myself, how do I get the highest level of efficiency on every single call that goes out? And then how do I use the compounding of that data being out in the marketplace and on the average having 40 conversations a day by three desks times five days a week, right? That's uh, 600 interactions. And then how do I keep all that data aggregated together? So when, then if you take an X, Y axis in a grid, every phone call potentially has an influence on somebody else's desk. If you're, if you're tracking that. Yep. And so that's how we designed it analog in 1992. And then what we did is we are a data machine. I will tell you, if you ever came in here and I just had my meeting yesterday with my team, every single search, every single placement, um, and for the most part, every interaction with our clients, we keep a data set that has allowed us to see where are the gaps and where are the training opportunities on our floor or with our process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm talking about data analytics um, on an order of magnitude that probably even some of our clients don't use. So and it is more use, of a machine. It is more of a machine. It's a machine. Yeah. It, it's a machine. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. scalable, which is why we're doing this, you know, which right. is why we're in the UK now, why we're in Canada, why we just made an acquisition in Canada, why we have an office in Cleveland. We're looking at a few others as well. So yeah. now we're taking this model that has a media machine a data machine and an analytics machine. And now we can go out to the market and where Dragonfly runs me just in salaries alone, a million dollars a year. My team mm-hmm. always squirms when I tell that number, but that's the number. But now instead of serving 12 recruiters, when I scale this to 24 recruiters, it cuts my spend in half per desk. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, a modern organization um and it's very different and it th- those are big bets um my only I sweat every night don't get me wrong i <laughs> yeah, sweat I was I, say, I, <laughs> yeah i i the, the only knock i have to, like i'm an engineer as well although yeah. i listen to another podcast i believe you were a nerd and engineer so uh welcome to the show um you know i i struggle with like developing this machine that you just look at it and say the numbers are off versus like it's a very, at least what Keytech offers and you offer, a very boutique offering. Everything is different. Some things take longer than others. And um, so it's this constant balancing act. And, you know, when do you, like you said from the top, when do you invest, for, you know, and what's the ROI and what's the, what's the timeline? I really like that, that thinking, not rocket science, but it, it, it definitely, you know, you lose sight of some of those simple tenets as you kind of get into the weeds of, of designing a, a program. And fortunately for, for our side, the, the, the timeline is, you know, in perpetuity, as far as I, as far as I know, we're all playing an infinite game here, right? So this, this organization, although we've been offered an insane amount of money, this organization is not for sale. Um, and, but the, the one area that we didn't jump into yet, that is more critical than a studio, than cameras, than data, data analytics, branding, it all comes down to how good are you and how patient will you be at assembling the right team? Yeah. It is very, very difficult to land a role here at TMG for two reasons. One is our interview process is, is, is pretty intense. I think it's nine or 10 steps. And then more importantly, and this is the truth, we make sure that we are right for the person rather than is the person right for us. And that's a, that's a different approach than most organizations. We want to make sure that we're right for you because the persona that a person comes into an interview process with is a little bit of a false front. Sure. And so therefore it's not sustainable over time and over pressure. And so when you make sure that you explain to people what works here and what doesn't work here and make sure that they really understand it, which is why we have nine steps, 
we have writing evaluation, we have uh, cognitive intelligence testing, we have personality testing. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why? Because, because there's this, I, I talk about this quite a few, um, well, quite often. There's this very evidence-based principle out there called Price's Law. And in, in, a, in, a, in a classic distribution of a normal company, the square root of the number of employees, 50% of them do the work. So if you're a 75-person firm, eight and a half people in your company do 50% of the work. And, and the other 67 and a half are doing the other 50% of the work in a normal distribution company. Organizations that understand Price's Law can get an oversized share beyond that number. And that's what we always go for. We're a 30, 32-person firm that gets the work done, I believe, and I look at it closely, of a 100-person firm, no doubt in my mind. Are you recruiting mainly green talent, or are you recruiting experienced, or, or is it a blend? Well, particularly to the, on the sales side, the recruiter okay, side. Okay, on the sales side. Yeah, on the sales side, we have decided that our model – Again, after three decades, so when you, you become a headhunter, you got to learn a couple things. You have to learn sales. You have to have this very specific organization. You have to understand TMG's process, right? Then you've got to learn the toughest part of this, which takes years, is medical device. So you've got to learn peripheral vascular, neuro, interventional cardiology, structural heart, surgical robotics, telehealth, behavioral health. And then you've got to learn the subsets of those because there's so many subsets of those. And then you've got to learn the functions within that design, development, quality, reg, clin, marketing. <laughs> so, so compliance. And then the subsets of those, that can take years before you can even have a proficiency. So what we've gone out now in the last year and a half or so is we've only hired salespeople who have put in 10 plus, 15 plus years in med tech, love the industry, understand the disease states, have scrubbed in many times in, in many different therapies, but are tired of working for the big machine, are tired of getting their commissions cut are tired of regime changes, are exhausted by the decisions made at a corporate level of we're restructuring, we're cutting back, we're changing this, we're cutting back. But they love this industry so much they want to stay in it. And so we say, bring your black book, bring your contacts, bring your work ethic, bring all the domain experience, and you're likely going to make two to three times the money with us. And you're going to get the play in the playground and you're not only going to get stuck selling, you know, a, 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 a left ventricular assist device, you're going to be able to deal with surgical robotics, imaging, navigation, structural heart, catheter delivery, vascular, right? Implants. You're going to get to see it all and play with it all. How's that sound? And so that's what we've been hiring. That makes sense. Yeah. You need to have some bar uh, of experience on the sales side. Well, I guess, you, you leapfrog that last piece when you're describing the challenge of understanding the industry. If they know the industry, then they just have to adopt your process. That makes yep. sense. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Grass is always greener, I'm sure, but you know, <laughs> that, that, that's a great hiring strategy. I like that. And that's a good segue into the next segment, um, you know, more focused on surgical robotics. And I, I wanted to ask you this question. I, I really like this, um, this question is, if you know, if you were to invest um, in a surgical robotics company, invest your time, however you want to spend that. But the leaders that are experienced sales reps, which seems like you know a lot of these types of people, versus leaders that are engineers, um, you know, which which company are you more excited to invest your time, your money in? I'm just curious about that. So my question back to you is, which category of surgical robotics? Oh boy. Um, so, well, orthopedic, so, soft tissue. Yeah, soft uh, tissue. Okay. Yeah, soft All tissue. Right. Yeah. So let's say soft tissue. So the, the, the market that Intuitive plays in is what we're talking about here, mm -hmm. right? There's two, only two FDA-cleared soft tissue robots in the U.S. right now, right? A census and Intuitive. And right now in the FDA, there's probably, from OUS as well as in U.S., over the next two years, you know, you've got Hugo in there. You've got uh, uh, 
let's call it off the top of my head, I could probably count six or seven that are in there right now having discussions. When you make a soft tissue robot, this is where the big strategics are getting it wrong. When you make a big soft tissue robot, first and foremost, you've got to be a digital native. So I'm answering your question here. You have to have been born in digital DNA because culturally, an analog organization who is already at scale has not developed their sales process, their R&D investment dollars, and I'll come back to that in a second, and they are highly likely looking to build some sort of defense mechanism against the surgical robot that is coming into their existing analog market and taking market share, mm -hmm. i.e. Ethicon and the old U.S. surgical, right, on, on the Medtronic and J&J &J side. So let, let's go back to the statement I made in R&D, and this is the biggest issue right here. Classically, when you develop a medical device, 90% of your R&D spend is previous to it getting cleared or approved by the FDA. So if you're, if, you're, if you're doing a mitral valve, whatever you're doing, when you start to move into the digital domain, you've got to probably expect to spend 2 to 3x post-clearance on a digital surgery robot, especially soft tissue. And there's evidence out there. If you look at Intuitive, Intuitive sales last year was $6.2 billion. Their R&D spend was almost $900 million. Medtronic on digital? On, on a robot, on a single robot. And, and Gary is putting money in. He's got four or five parallel platforms coming behind what he's working on right now. Um, but, you know, the, his single port and, and, and the classic, you know, Da Vinci, all of that. They're spending about 800,000 a year, about 800 million a year on that 900 million. Medtronic's gross sales were, I think, 32 billion last year. As an organization wide, their spend on R&D, I think, was a little over 3 billion. Just let that number sit there for a second. <laughs> All right, and, and an R&D spend at a Medtronic Every, uh, that dollar spent there, even if you put it towards a robot and you took that percentage, and let's say for fun it was $400 million, and I'm being probably generous, mm -hmm. I will guarantee you a digital native who is solely focused on a robot probably gets twice to three times the value out of their dollar than a company that's not a true robotics company, just out of efficiencies as well as compounding of intellect within that team. What do you mean to, for our audience uh, by digital native, digital native robot? So a digital native company. So a company that was born and ideated its product with the intention of the very first day the company was started, it's digital. So let's look at digital natives. So let's look at certainly intuitive. Intuitive's done nothing other than being a computer in between the surgeon and the patient. CMR, Cambridge Medical Robotics, a computer between, and, and there's a reason why uh, CMR got to market in, what, six years, where I think J&J uh, &J and Medtronic have been at it for almost a dozen plus. You know, you can tell me Hugo's out in the market, but it really isn't. And so a digital native, it doesn't have to unpack an analog culture and mindset. They are digital out of the gate from how they think, how they hire and what their end game is. And they're not defending an analog um, disruptor camp. or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. An analog yeah. camp. Uh, and, and digital knows how much money they have to spend. When you look at that post release of a soft tissue robot in the United, or anywhere in the world, not just the United States, your R&D spend is going to be three to four X annually than what your initial annual spend was in getting it through prototype verification validation fda selling the first 10 selling the first 100 which are two entirely different experiences standing that up because once you release that it's a little like the tesla somebody it's put the that beginning analogy. you yeah. constantly have got to be upgrading top grading and I'm then sure the investors love that joe <laughs> there you go there you go and then wall street looks at this and goes Wait a minute, why did you off-balance sheet $2 billion? 
in order to build a robot because if I ran it and mixed it into my quarterly numbers to uh, my shareholders, they would shoot me. And this is why classic analog companies whose shareholders are analog, used to an analog business model, have a hard time transitioning over to a digital mindset because it's a much higher spend on R&D. This is a very dangerous and challenging business, um, you know, because being an entrepreneur, you got to raise the money. You got to have the experience on the digital side. You have to develop the hardware, which is no uh, small feat in and of it, in and of itself. You said in another podcast, a hundred plus soft tissue robotic sort of platforms in the pipeline. I, I think I know the answer to this, but who are the winners and, and who are the losers from a, from a, maybe from a mindset perspective, I don't need the names, just mm. the digital focused ones are more likely to like, why would you even develop the hardware and, and just why not just focus on the, the digital side and sell into, you know, 75 of those companies that uh, need it? Well, because you don't know who's going to pay for that. And it's a great question. And I'm glad you're leading us down there. So when you look at a company like great companies out there, like Care Syntax, uh, Proximy, um, Theodore, uh, and I'm sure I'm leaving off a couple, but these are, these are pure digital telehealth plays that are data aggregators that their intention is to add in, add advisement and insights to the user and, or track whatever it is you're going to track and help increase the efficiencies in hospitals and eventually changing centers of care. So the biggest issue, so digital, up until about two years ago, had a trajectory like this. Digital's trajectory, if you want to be even generous, is at best flat. And there's a couple reasons for that. You're saying in, in, in surgical robotics or digital health broadly? Digital health across the board. I would agree. Yeah, because you can't point to who's going to pay for it. There's no reimbursement on digital right now so to speak, at scale. And I got into, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at Device Talks, Tom Salemi's Device Talks in a couple of weeks up in Boston, which is always a great event. And I'm running a panel up there and prepping for the panel with some people. I got their, all their jaws to hit the, gra hit the ground because I said, medtech is no longer about the patient. Because if it was about the patient, we would have these digital devices <laughs> yeah. on hand and being deployed on behalf of the patient. Digital is about servicing the hospital and offering very direct evidence and getting the payers to reimburse it. Once you tell me you've got the hospitals that will use it and the payers that will reimburse it, then you can t come back to me and tell me digital is about the patient. But until then, I don't care what you tell me. And so therein lies the biggest impediment to the acceptance of digital or, or one of the two big ones. And I'll tell you what the second one is if you have any questions before I go there. No, yeah, I mean, I would just echo that it's the value. Where's the value? Um, Show me yeah. why it's going to save me money, increase outcomes, and, 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 and increase accessibility. But you can't do that until you can use it. And therein is the challenge with digital is digital only justifies itself once you run hundreds and hundreds of clinical trials within a hospital setting to show an evidence-based outcome, not some white paper that actually saves lives and money and answers a big question in healthcare today. We don't have enough skilled labor anymore because they're all dropping out or they're burnt out or we've got, oh, we, we've got expanding centers of care, so no longer hospitals. You've got ASCs that are draining the nurses off of the hospital setting, and then you've got people in hospitals that are uh, going over to, to travel nurses and getting 50% more pay. Complex marketplace, for, for sure. Love it. I don't want to lose sight of the, the speed to data. I just want to ask you a few more questions related to surgical robotics companies. So, you know, two, two general buckets. The first, you know, like a, a startup company um, or, you know, just got maybe like a series A, they have a Frankenstein prototype and, you know, they, they need to get the market, obviously. So what, what data are you seeing those, those types of companies needing to collect to get more money, to keep developing the product, 
to market. So one of our prior guests, Galen Robotics, you know, was, was on and, you know, they were just, you know, they've, they're doing very well. They're raising their money. They focused almost entirely on, you know, user data, making sure that the user could work it in parallel, work with it in parallel with technically making sure that it could articulate per their, per their specs. But it seems like there's a valley of death with, with surgical robotics companies. If they can't collect that from the series A to, you know, bigger, what data is most critical for them at that juncture uh, to, to raise more money and keep, keep the train rolling down the tracks? So Moon Surgical, if you're not familiar with Moon, but Moon, Moon Surgical, I think we just, I think they just got clearance in the U.S. Uh, I think that the, the, the simpler the surgical robot or the system between the surgeon and the patient, and in the middle of that is the work team, the cost per bit on a soft tissue robot is what needs to be evaluated. So what, so if that makes sense. So if sure. I'm getting a byte of data at what is my cost on that? And then what is that piece of data? Because is that piece of data intraoperative information? Is that piece of data workflow? Is that piece of data? This is where I think that the big strategics are getting it wrong. Um, and first of all, if I had, if I had $800 million, it wouldn't be going into a soft tissue robot. So, <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that's where the, the it's going to be an issue for the next five or 10 years is that that game is played and there's only room for two or three soft tissue robots in the U S at most. Um, and worldwide there's, that'll be interesting because there's different markets and I'm going to come back and answer your question, but it's relevant to it is how you sell into China with the Renovo model, which I think will do really well there, is going to be different on how you sell into Italy, Spain, Germany, and France, is going to be different to how you sell into the U.S., is going to be different how you sell into South America. So that's where I think that the level of sophistication is either reliability or an asset. And so if I'm a soft tissue robot, I'm looking for the highest fidelity data point for the lowest cost and I think most soft tissue robots today are way over-featured for what the surgeon really wants. And I think where the deficit is, is the imaging side. So I'm coming around answering your question is the data that will get the next soft tissue robot over the line will be the imaging and allowing the clinician to see what he or she can see with their naked eye. And I take that out of, you know, Vip Patel runs the SRS event in Orlando. Usually this year it's in Australia. On that panel were all the luminaries in surgical robotics on the clinician side, not the companies. And they went down one after another. And they all said, I would take a robot that did 80% of what Da Vinci did in a minute if you could show me what I can't see with my naked eye. And there's some technologies out there. I just got back from Sages, and I, I, I can't say who the company is, but there are two right now playing in that market. And that data, if I'm doing a robot, soft tissue, I want an enormous amount of data all on video, answering your mm -hmm. question. Yeah, I mean, I, to that point, I mean, there's the trend of obviously going to simpler robots and surgeon assist, uh, robot assist uh, procedures versus the whole thing, um, and, and imaging is is a key part of that. And imaging um, data, this is this is where people get it wrong. The amount of data that you can pull off of an image, a good video image that has hyperspectral imaging and allows you to multi layer to see what you can't see, that aggregation of data right now, too many people are sleeping on. Yeah, right. yeah. Everyone's focused on some sort of biosensor or some other thing. Just stick a fancy camera in there. You can get anything you'd ever want. So I, I want to go on the record right now, uh, Joe, with with you know these these um, robotic companies, startup robotic companies, particularly a fancy camera. What we see a lot at KeyTech is the, the startup companies are building the robot around the camera, but they're not thinking about uh, the 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 standards that need to, that you need to follow when you're developing these robots, things like IEC 60601. I don't know if you hear that much in, in your business, but I can't say how almost every startup surgical robotic company we've talked to, you know, they're missing some glaring part of uh, the standard safety standard, like 
tip of a, a tip and tilt of a, of a console or electrical safety. So my advice, you know, to, to start up uh, surgical robotics companies is call Intertech, call your, your safety test lab, get them in the door, you know, at MIT or Harvard, please. And, and get the report saying this need, you need to have creepage and clearance distances of X or, you know, you're in contact with the patient. So you, you need to, you know, have certain features on your robot. And, you know, it needs to survive a drop, water ingress, all these things that can dramatically change the architecture of your system. Get that information as early as possible because you don't want to find that out. And, and my next comment is in V&V, that data. Like that is where investors, they are tired of cutting checks. They don't want to hear that you you failed 60601 testing. So work back. You, you talked about working backwards from the digital side. Like work backwards from the hardware uh, compliance perspective. Get that safety testing done early and get that uh, or evaluation done early. Are you seeing some of the things like that where robots get into VNV and, and, and they're struggling? Well, yeah, because you, you, you're a lot more of what you don't know than what you do know. And there's some specialization. This is where service organizations come in um, and, and, and should be partners in a mo- lot more active situation because there are organizations, service providers have seen more train wrecks that are, as I said early in our session, that are more valuable than the wins. And so I can look at, uh, I can look at most startups and I can spitball plus or minus six months how long they're going to be alive. Um, I can also usually look at technologies and understand what the market's willing to accept and not willing to accept because I've recruited for and sat with CEOs and venture people of 20 lookalike companies or 20 lookalike technologies to that and found out where they went sideways. And so you're right. You need to bring these service providers in who will tap you on the shoulder and tell you what you don't want to hear to avoid that oh shit moment. Um, But oftentimes the problem with startups is boards don't allow them to be transparent because it usually comes at the perceived expense of the CEO's job. And I can't tell you how many CEOs I've had said, I can't tell the board that yet because they're going to make me stop. Meaning, look, there's a fundamental flaw in our technology. We just need to keep going forward. Is that what you mean? Well, fundamental flaw or a delay or we should do a market shift, but that's not what we told the board we were going to do a year ago and it's a different market. Or our burn rate so far is X per month and we've got X months left. The problem with boards today than they were 20, 25 years ago. 25 years ago, most board members were operators and built companies. Very few boards today, VCs, have built companies. Yeah. And so their area of expertise is what they've read and watched, not what they've experienced, whether it's Reg, Clin, Qual. And if you're looking at a surgical robotic company, generally, you, you pegged out a market. Let's look at Hugo. If you saw Hugo at Sages, you just needed to look at it to know it's probably not going to do very well because it was a format that was ideated 12, 14 years ago. And think about how much digital surgeries change, soft tissue robotics, changing centers of care. And we found out what the market doesn't want, i.e. enormous large footprints. Yeah, they're, they're changing their business models, as you know, to try and get in the door earlier, but that only goes so far. You know, it's kind of a race to the bottom, I suppose. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, these are dangerous and complex and expensive capital intensive uh, platforms and, and programs. And I don't know if it's the right move for globals to, you know, hire 300, 200 people or whatever it is um, and build this, you know, team to develop these products because, yeah, as you said, the market shifts. <laughs> well, what they should become is aggregators, right? So when we recruit for surgical robotic companies over the last 10 years, 15 years, we have never recruited out of a large strategic because the skills there are not necessarily, for the most part, the elite nine and a halfs out of tens. And it's not the individual's fault. It's just that they grew up in surgical robotics inside of a large strategic company. 
and therefore have never seen the cutting edge. So when you're a large strategic and you're trying to build a robot, you're going up against companies that anybody who wants to be a surgical robotics startup person or wants to get, you go, you, you go log your four years in Intuitive. Or you stay in the Bay Area around the seven or eight surgical robotic companies that are constantly hiring, firing, and putting everybody on a carousel out there because you're on the leading edge. So the big strategics should not try and pick a fist fight with just better talent, hardware, software, firmware, clinical, et cetera, that pound for pound, you're not going to win that fight. What you need to do is become an aggregator, a financer, get a soft tissue robot, get a, get, get a neuro robot, get a peripheral vascular, get an ortho robot, keep them separate, keep them off campus, have yep. their own leadership team, finance them, do a JV, a, a, a joint profit share, allow it to remain an independent company, and then you'll retain the best people. Because here's the other issue. You buy, you buy a robot like a CMR, J&J by CMR, two-thirds of those engineers leave CMR. Sure. And now you've got yourself a robot to date, but not moving forward. Yeah. And that's where service providers like Keytech come in to help sort of carry the ball when, when those teams you know, go, go away. I'm really enjoying like the, you know, when I interview people, like the, the personal side, um, like why these people found these companies. I had one guest, um, she had a preventative mastectomy um, and she invented this sort of like breast warming technology, super cool. I had another uh, founder who is translating the technology his father invented at Penn State, um, you know, into a, a wearable cardiac monitor. So it's it's not just like a one-off. It, it seems like that's like a, the norm almost, to be honest with you. So um I guess, do you have any personal like ties to your media mogul nature? And uh, I, like I said on another podcast, I grew up watching Meet the Press. I still like the show. And, uh, you know, I used to, um, you know, interview people and whatnot in, in undergrad and stuff. So I guess, where did, where did you kind of come from? Engineer, got into search after I spent about three years as an engineer and realized I couldn't work for a big corporate company. Although I think you're born an engineer, you don't become one. So you never stop being an engineer. Yeah. Um, and then I got into search uh, through a side door, uh, but I picked medical device on purpose in 1989, 1990 because of the technology, because I knew technology would always be pushing higher ground. People wanted to live longer and healthier, and it had a built-in governor in it called the FDA. So it was never going to grow very large. I mean, grow too aggressively, 6% per year, but you had micro markets within it that grow at 15 to 25% per year. So we would chase those. Uh, the media side, I'm, and you won't believe this, I'm a card-carrying introvert. I, <laughs> I generally go off the grid when I'm not in my office or here in the studio. But I am a teacher. I love to teach. I love to build. And I love to inspire. I've always been a teacher, whether it's combat sports, uh, uh, soccer at a high level. Uh, I always love to teach. Teach, teach, teach. So to me, this media platform that we have is all about teaching and inspiring people nothing else it's not we're not doing this for money that ends up becoming a product a byproduct of us doing this so that's that's what my my uh sort of drive is every day what advice would you give to entrepreneurs you know maybe entrepreneurs in the med tech space trying to get their products to market uh, any advice for them pay your company before yourself number two is you will want to give up so many times, so many times, which is why I think it's imperative that you really are obsessed, not interested in having a successful outcome. You need to absolutely be obsessed above everything else. And so I have found the ones who end up, depending on what your level of success is, but if we're going to talk about transaction, um, it's the people who have become obsessed at the expense of everything else to move that technology to the market and, and, and forget about balance. Um, think about more about integration. You have to be obsessed. Yeah. And I, I thought you were going to end that by saying, you know, obsessed with the outcomes and not, you know, just 
Obsessed, that's where no, the value obsessed is. Obsessed with the journey, not with the outcome. You have to be obsessed with the journey. The outcome will well, patient force outcomes. You. Just to be clear, <laughs> patient yeah, outcomes. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> sure. But 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 you can't plant the flag as an entrepreneur either, because once you plant the flag, you stop looking forward and you focus on that flag. And so what you've got to understand is you're always going to be moving that target as you move uphill, because that's what this is: is a big uphill climb. And so keep on moving it, moving it, moving it, moving it, and let your team know that it's going to be moved or else they're going to throw their hands up again and go, the SOB, move the flag again. Well, when you join this team, I told you we're going to be moving the flag a lot, and it's not with the intention of frustrating you. It's the point of evolution. Joe, that was a great way to end it. Um, I, we'll take that, uh, that uh, advice there to heart as well. I mean, I, I think we have – you know, an annual plan here on our sales side and you certainly have a longer term vision that is blurry, but ever sort of forming. But sometimes it makes sense to shorten that duration. You talked about the, the length of time for the ROI just to kind of close it out here. Um, maybe it should be more like a three month flag placement and instead of a year, maybe six months or just constantly evaluating how far out to put plant that flag. Think about it. I'll let to, so. We'll finish on this. Here's your visual on that. I love you said that you drive in your car. You're taking data in from your speedometer, right? And you're taking in, right? You're checking that. But just beyond that, beyond the steering wheel, you're looking at the road in front of you as well. And then you have your final destination. It's a vision in your mind, but it's not in your eyes. And so I would run my business like that. I would run my business on the immediate data that's important to me is coming off my dashboard. The, the, the next important is the, is, the, is the proximal data on the road immediately in front of me for responses or... I'm on a four-lane highway. I can see, I can see, I can see, I can get through here. And I eventually know I'm going to end up in Jupiter, Florida. I can't see it yet, but I know it's there and I'm getting there. That's how, as an entrepreneur, you need to go dashboard, hood of the car, ultimate destination. Got it. Great. All right, Joe, I'll, All right. I'll see you on the road. You got it, man. <laughs> All right. Take Goodbye. care. Thanks, everybody, for, for logging in. Uh, this is Andy from KeyTech, MedTech Speed to Data. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.